Talking during movies, surprise Friday episode. Hey folks, um, listen, this is this is something different. Uh, so this is part A of B. A, uh, I sat down with the great Richard Turner, and I had a goal in mind where I really wanted to. Uh, I wanted to find. I, I wanted to go at a certain angle, and I thought Ocean's Eleven would be the, uh, the, the the perfect movie to go at this angle. Here's the best part about this. I was wrong, and the conversation went in a different direction. So we maybe touched on Ocean's Eleven twice, maybe three times. Uh, you know, I, I should have just talked to him uh, and and blown off the movie. In fact, hindsight twenty twenty, right? Um, and in wanting to do this, I probably should have just talked to him. So, anyways, Richard had a film called Delt that just came out, a documentary on his life, absolutely amazing. And we focused a lot on that. We talked a lot uh, about his blindness about how he sees colors and not blackness uh, how um how he just how, how he goes through life uh what he's done what he's accomplished how much he loves his wife the love story that is his wife that is his wife uh how much he loves his son acer um everything about it so it's just it's fascinating it's a, it's a great conversation it's one that i'm really really proud of and uh i'm a little bummed out that i actually picked a movie when I should have just gone out and just uh, chatted with him. B, the flip side of this is my dear friend John Keeling and I, we actually uh, talk over Delt. And I really am I'm a fanboy on part B. So you're going to get A, enjoy it. There's going to be uh, 20, I think it's 26A, 26B. Uh, I'll introduce B and John and I fanboying out about Delt and what we see and what happens and everything else uh, in the documentary about Richard Turner. But Enjoy this conversation. Get inspired. He's an amazing human being. Uh, some cliff notes. He is uh, blind. He's a card mechanic. In fact, he's the best in the world at being a card cheat and manipulator. And he's a sixth degree black belt. If that doesn't get your interest peaked, I don't know what will. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with the very entertaining, very inspiring, overall amazing human being, Mr. Richard Turner. Enjoy. All right, so here we are live uh, two times in this short-lived world of this podcast that I've done. Um, I've seen someone or heard about someone or, or wanted to do something, and I've sent out an email, and within a couple of days or a day, that person has responded and said yes. The first was Tim Kennedy, who is an Army Ranger, Green Beret, MMA fighter, has two different television shows, Hunting Hitler and and uh, Hard Jobs with Tim. And I emailed him because he's in Austin. And I said, hey, would you do this? And he said, yes, of course. It sounds like fun. And you're the second of people that are way above my pay grade, as I like to call it, that do really amazing things. I mean, you just told me you just got done traveling the world. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor. It's, it's my pleasure to, uh, to introduce Mr. Richard Turner. And I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I had I'm a, waving to everybody, by the way. He's I'm wa waving hello. He's waving hello. Uh, this is going to be this is going to be a fun and different one. In the fact that I was telling a friend this, I said this this is amazing because I watched your I was flying back from L.A. and I watched your documentary, and it was fascinating to say the least. Um, what you're able to do 
is, and by the way, in the background, we're playing, sorry, folks, we're playing Oceans. I get caught up real quick. We're playing Oceans 11. It's a minute 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. You're queued up. And the reason I brought this up and, and what, I've always thought about this, whether it's a mentalist, really good mentalists, or, or people like yourself, amazing card mechanics where you, I mean, you fooled Penn and Teller, which they rarely get fooled. Mm-hmm. What, what, what was the, what, there's, where's the why in the road where you go from entertaining people and doing what you're doing as you're manipulating cards right now in front of me? Where's the why in the road that you go, you know what, I'm going to be an entertainer and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be the best in the world. And I'm going to show everyone this versus I'm going to do poker games all over the world and I'm just going to collect my, you know, I'm taking the criminal route. Uh, <laughs> well, who's to say I haven't been done both? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. My assumption, I just... Yeah, you're jumping already. <laughs> I'm already jumping. <laughs> uh, well, uh, entertainment, I started as a performer in 1972. Mm-hmm. I joined a theater company. Uh, the director was an old actor from the 50s, 60s, Steve Terrell. And I was always playing with cards. And you just to def- uh, give a little background for everybody, I'm I was called a card mechanic. And to def- define that, a card mechanic is somebody who can control a card game. The techniques used to perform card magic are uh, in a total different area. And they will not help in any way at the card table. In other words, they will not give you an advantage to win. You'll do, a magician will do some very clever card trick and they go, man, I'll never play cards with you not realizing that that person could not do a single thing to create an advantage for themselves. The techniques for the table, the card table, are just way, way off the charts, uh, more difficult to accomplish and spend you know, many, many, many thousands and tens of thousands of hours to develop. Um, so, th- uh, so that's why your point about why did <laughs> I go in the why in the road? Why did I choose this part of the why? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I like people. I like uh, amazing people. I like the reaction I get from my audience. I like the adrenaline that rush. I get an adrenaline rush from the, from the rush that comes from their amusement and entertainment. And the thing about the gambling work is everybody has a fascination. And I had a mentor named Di Vernon. He said, you have to have an emotional contact, connection with your audience. And everybody has a fascination about gamblers, card sharks, Las Vegas, you know, most people, even the most conservative Baptists will play bridge or gin rummy to the business guy, business uh, men and women that go to Vegas two or three times a year or have their own private games. And that question always lurks in their mind. Can somebody deal off the bottom right under my nose and I not see it? Because people think, well, that would be so obvious. I'd be able to catch that. And then when they see it happen that you can deal off the bottom or the second card or out of the middle or anywhere in between, which is parts of my show, then they go, oh my gosh, I'll never play cards again. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, it was the, so the, to answer your question, the why, the entertainment why is because of the uh, enjoy, enjoyment I get from entertaining people. And there, and there was a period of time when I did use my cards um, uh, in different games and usually they were in usually the people knew who I was and they allowed me to play and sometimes they even challenged me to go ahead and try let's see if you can beat me without and me not catch you um, but uh, but entertainment was my first order of business entertainment now I mean my second one and then once again so uh, for people who don't know first of all real quick the documentary is called Delt 
D-E-A-L-T as in Delta Handle Cars. Yep. It's absolutely amazing. It's available now. Um, go get it. Uh, I watched it on an American Airlines flight coming back from L.A., as I said. It's on iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Prime, Hulu. You can Perfect. Get, you can get it on any VOD platform. Fantastic. So go out, get it, folks. Watch it. Uh, you're not going to be disappointed in any way. The other thing that I thought when I was watching it is I said, man, you spent a lot of time in L.A. How has Stan Lee not turned you into a superhero? You've got a black belt. <laughs> you have magic hands. You, you, if you don't mind me saying, you, you cannot see. Right. You're a walking superhero. I know. My, my, <laughs> my son, all his friends as he grew up, called me uh, Daredevil. I guess there's a superhero named yes. Daredevil. <clears throat> and so I've been uh, associated with him on many, many, many <laughs> occasions. So um, there it is. There it uh, is. Just call me superhero. Just call you a superhero. <laughs> yeah. it, uh, it, it actually fits. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing. So you went the, um, the, the, the entertainment route and you, you drive down this road. Um, you met a, um, I would guess I'd call him a mentor uh -huh. at the Magic Castle. Divernon. Divernon. Who challenged you to be better. And instead of instead of going down the same road, you accept. Was that the first big challenge you took, or were there other challenges that led you to Die Vernon's challenge that really that you knew you could accept it and and move forward? Well, my I started off challenging myself long before I met Vernon. Okay. Um, the different moves with the cards. I started off with what what was considered the most difficult moves to do, which are to deal like from the middle of the deck. Uh, and then bottom and second deals, but I started off by learn, uh, learning middle deals uh, because that was the toughest. So I started off with what was considered the more difficult or the most difficult techniques, and uh, and, that, and that's why I got to meet Di Berman in, in that was 1975. I was uh, still I just turned 21, and I was working on a guy named with a guy named Bob Yerkes on a TV series called. Um, Circus of the Stars, and then the, I helped him with a coordinating of the TV series Wonder Woman with Linda Carter. He was the oh, wow. coordinator, and I lived with him. And he had a whole he has still does he has a whole circus in his backyard. He's eighty six years old now. <laughs> Done more stunts than anybody in the history of stunt work. Anyway, and um, so I um, uh, developed things to a certain level that it got the attention of Di Vernon through some other intermediator. intermediator other friends, mm -hmm. for those fancy intermediary words. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so I got an introduction, and uh, he took a liking to me, and and, uh, and it was because I had challenged myself uh, beyond what anyone in the area that I grew up in were doing in this area. And so, and and I have to say, it, it was beyond their level, but it was really bad. <laughs> I mean, my technique back then, he that was one of the first things he said to me. I don't care how I don't care how fine that brief is when you deal like that. It's unnatural, it's suspicious, and I know you're up to something. So, I know you're up to something. Yeah. And so um but he for whatever reason he took a liking to me and I became the recipient of a century worth of his most guarded card table artifice. You know, the techniques for the card table are the most closely guarded pieces of sleight of hand information. And he spent his entire life, he lived to be 98 years old, chasing gamblers and hustlers around the world to learn their techniques. And then, and, uh, and for over half a century, probably 60, 60 years, he was the best card handler in the world. 
and, wow. and, and, and what he would do when you to circle around to what you said about challenging is uh, during my years with him I had the privilege of spending like 17 years with him he would uh, describe to me very intricate card concepts and card moves and the thing is because I couldn't see what he was doing he didn't describe them to me the way he could do them or the way that anyone else was able to do them or they were written about somewhere he described them to me in a way that he wished they could be done he had spent uh, a whole almost an entire century, but decades, trying to develop moves with the deck held in a very natural position. Because the more natural you are in your execution, the less attention you draw to yourself. And the less attention that you draw to yourself, you know, that, that takes the heat off. So if you're gonna deal a, move, a card off the top, a three, your daughter, Harper, can deal that card off the top with no effort at all. Mm -hmm. But to have that card uh, come from the second card down as if it's off the top, that's a whole different story. Or off the bottom or out of the middle. Or to shuffle cards and have them uh, look like they're being shuffled but not a card changes places. Or I shuffle the cards back into the exact places you want them to go. Uh, so anyway, he would describe to me these methods and I, because I believed that he could do them because he'd put my hands on his hands and at that time, I had some peripheral vision, even though it, it was 20 over 400 at that time, which is twice as low as what's considered legally blind. So it was just a blur. And, uh, and forward, I had no forward vision at all because the macula, which is the center of the eye, had already completely degenerated. So um, he would describe these moves to me, and I would feel his hands, and, and I believed that he was able to do them. I had no reason not to believe that he was able to do them. So I would spend thousands and thousands of hours of practicing de de figuring out how to do what he described. And then I would, uh, I would get it, and the next time I'd see it, he'd go, that's it, that's perfect. And he'd call the other, whatever other card magician mechanic was hanging around with it, Magic Castle, come over. Usually it was a guy named Larry Jennings or Tony Giorgio. Go over and watch this, watch this. And he'd go, watch the rhythm here, watch the technique. And I'd go, wow, I guess I'm getting it. So, um, and then he just kept giving me more and more challenges. Like he would, I remember one of them was a guy named Dad Stevens from 1919. He was a hustler. And he showed Vernon his checkbook, which uh, at that time was, had a quarter of a million dollars in it. And he had, lived in a quarter of a million dollar home. And in 1919, that, that was very significant. He got it all through gambling. And he had a particular move called a side second. And Vernon worked on that move for 60, 60 years, 50, 60 years, and never got it. And he described it to me. And, um, and then with my particular handling that I was developing, I was able to get that move down. And he said he, it was better than what Dad Stevens did you know, back in, you know, now 100 years ago. Now it's 100 years ago. So it begs the question, are you allowed in Vegas? Oh, I'm allowed to, I'm, uh, it's a long story, but uh, all the people that, that are in security and all that, yeah. the, the people that are top in, excuse me, top in, that was only my head, no. <laughs> <laughs> which can't hurt, so I can run into anything. Anyway, the security, um, uh, they, they all know who I am. We're very, we're very good friends. Have you consulted ever with, um, you know, when you, uh, with Vegas security or with law enforcement based on your knowledge? I did oh, somewhat. It wasn't an interest of mine. Okay. I have a friend named Steve Forty, F-O-R-T-E, and he is one of the, probably the top, top casino consultant on gaming protection and another guy named George Josephs. 
Joseph, George Joseph, and they're probably the two foremost casino protection uh, authorities. And then I have another friend on the East Coast named Bruce Samboy, who was a gaming regulator for 32 years for the casinos on the on the East Coast, and uh, and we're all very very good friends. Mm-hmm. And if there's ever been a time where like I don't know how this is happening, but we're getting cheated, you they might call you and say, hey. Yeah, but I like I said, it was yeah, it was not an it, interest. Was, it was not an interest of mine. I didn't want to live in Las Vegas. I didn't. Yeah, I had no interest in that. Yeah, and even though my DVDs and stuff, um, they have used them uh, for educational purposes and training. Okay. Interesting. So, we're um, it, it, one of the things that I find fascinating is, and it, it ties back a little bit to the movie here is Ocean's Eleven. They're preparing to rob this casino. But the preparation of everything that they're doing, of all the practice runs they're doing, getting schedules down and everything else, I liken that a little bit to how you know the schedule of those cards that are in your hands. So, folks, for the other, the, you know, I mean, we're not, we don't videotape this, but uh, since I walked in the door, uh, Mr. Turner's had a deck of cards in his hand the whole time, manipulating them, moving them, shuffling them, pulling cards out, putting cards back in, and just constantly this motion. Is that, I mean, is, it, is, is that habit? Is it, is it continual practice? Is, it, is that your, still your drive? What? It's all of the above. It's how I develop the moves. Okay. I, what I do is I'll take, uh, first I have a, an objective. Okay. Say a particular way of dealing a second card, a stud second, say. Okay. And I want to have the deck held with all the fingers on the side of the deck. So I will analyze my objective first of all. And then I will start putting together piece by piece, what do my fingers have to do to make have happen what I want to do? And so I'll sit there and analyze it. I'll realize, okay, this thumb needs to be here. This finger needs to be there. Uh, I need to apply a precise amount of pressure to push over exactly 22.6 thousandths of an inch, which is the caliber of two cards. And then I will do it in slow. <laughs> Hold on, pause. How do you know the caliber of pressure of two cards? Uh, 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 that's about that. There's at least fifty thousand hours. Oh. Oh, let me put it another way. I have a hundred. I've done that particular move over a hundred million times, over five million times in front of a live audience. So that's how I, I do it. So, a hundred million times. Uh, be, and it's. I think it's part of the single most difficult slight. And all of sleight of hand, all of magic and gambling is this particular second deal. And I'm watching you do it right now, and I cannot tell. Yeah, and so I will push over, like I said, and I'm holding up a you know, there's two cards there. Yeah. So when I push over one card, I have exactly two cards lined up as one. So I will sit there and I'll analyze that move, and and I'll sit there and I'll practice it in super slow motion until every exacting element of the muscle memory is firmly embedded in my brain. And I'll just keep doing that, and then I turn it into a subconscious habit. I'm one of those persons that uh, is always moving. I can't sit still. If I'm sitting, people, I have a friend, the director of the film Delt, Luke Corm. Mm-hmm. He's like a, a younger brother. Um, he, he would say, chill, you know, and I'd go, chill? Oh, that's like punishment to me. I want to chill, <laughs> relax. Oh, that's relax. That's that's like putting me in time out. And uh, so chilling or relaxing is not relaxing to me. 
And so I turn, uh, I'm one of those persons like that would be, if I didn't, I would be twiddling my thumbs. I actually, if I don't have cards in my hand, you can actually read my thoughts because I can sign in sign language just about as fast as you, while you say the words, I can spell the entire word out. And um, so you can actually literally read my thoughts. <laughs> so um, I funnel that idle energy. It's like a car idling. It's doing mm -hmm. nothing. It's idling, but, that, but the motor's running. It's using gas. It's using energy. Energy is being expelled, but there's no nothing happening. And so I take that idle energy and I divert it or fo refocus it towards uh, practicing moves subconsciously. So I turn it into a subconscious habit, like, like I said. And so then wherever I'm going, I'm with my wife in the grocery store. Uh, I, I stand behind the cart. She pulls the cart where it gives the impression that I'm actually pushing the cart. So it looks like I'm helpful, but I'm actually not helpful at all. I'm just <laughs> hanging on while my left hand is uh, practicing some particular move. Um, and then at the checkout stand at the uh, uh, grocery store, as an example, they have this little, about two foot wide by one foot square uh, little uh, counter. People think it's to, to write checks and stuff, but no, it's actually so you can practice the cards while, they, while you pay for the groceries. <laughs> uh, and I, when I get in the car, I have this little, little uh, well, I have one right behind me on my uh, couch there. And I have a, a little pad that has a little, about 12, about 15 inch by 12 inch uh, table with a felt on it. And I always have a rubber band, deck rubber band to it. And so that way, the first thing I do when I get in the car, I put my seatbelt on, pull out my little shuffle pad, set it on my, on my lap, the deck is ready to go before we're out of the driveway. And that way I'm practicing when we're driving. In the movie theater, I love going to the movies. What's a blind man going to movies for? Because <laughs> <laughs> I get uninterrupted practice, that's why. <laughs> so I get in the theater, I have my little shuffle pad, I just have to make sure that you don't hear that. Yep. My wife will go, shh. Like at church, same thing. At church, I have my, what I call my church cards. I work for U.S. Playing Card Company as their touch analyst. They're the biggest card manufacturer in the company, and they make the country, and they make the best cards you can purchase. Bicycle, Hoyle, Steamboat, Kim, B, these are B. If okay. you, any, all the major labels, they're, they're, the, they're all made under one, uh, one company, the U.S. Playing Card Company, so, uh, now they're in Kentucky, but they've been around for 150 years or so. But anyway, um, I have them made me, make me a deck that's blank on both sides. So it doesn't matter to me if there's a, no uh, card on it. doesn't affect the moves that I'm doing. So my wife, I have in her Bible, she has a, like a case that it goes in, my church cards. So I'll just take them out of there. And that way uh, people aren't distracted by, what's that guy doing with a deck of cards in church practicing? What's well, not? It's just a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. So have you, um, if you don't mind me asking, uh, have you always um, gone to church, or is this something that your wife brought you into, or did you bring, or did you guys come together through church? Um, oh, I brought her. Okay. Yeah, I brought her into it. I uh, became a Christian back in 1971. Actually, it was Valentine's Day, 1971. Nice. What, uh, what, what led to that, if you don't mind me asking? Um, uh, we, uh, when I first started losing my sight at nine, mm -hmm. um, I was a very good artist. And uh, I was actually noted for my artistic talents when I was five years old. I did a seascape. And it was from a picture I saw in a National Geographic. And my kindergarten teacher goes to her assistant, well, look, come over here and look what Rick, Rick did. And they were astounded. They did a full seascape where all the rest of the kids were just smearing paint all over their nose and tables. 
And then so I and then first grade, second grade, third grade, I was always I was the best artist in the school. And then I my sister and I, Lori uh, Dratt, Lori Dratt, sort of maiden name, married name. She, uh, we both got scarlet fever, and we don't know if this is what the, what caused it, but there was the thing, the only co- commonality between the two of us. We both got scarlet fever, and we both started losing our sight in the same way. She was five, and I was nine at the time. And uh, so I went from being the best artist in the school to not being able to do art at all. And so there was a you know a time of rebellion there, and. Uh, um, and then the, some of the teasing in school uh, irritated me and because I was, the, I was always the smallest or second smallest in the class. And uh, so I, you know, I wasn't able to really stand up for myself very well. And uh, I remember one time I was doing a, uh, it was a art competition. Uh, it was a, boy, a statewide boys club competi- uh, uh, meet in, in Mission Bay. I think it was Mission Bay in in San Diego, California, and boys mm-hmm. clubs from across the entire state were there. And I entered an art competition, even though at that point, my vision had degenerated to the point where I literally had my nose on the canvas as I was painting the three vases with proper lighting, shadowing, shade, and so on. And uh, it won first place, but the other two other boys came up and they would you know, flip the bird in front of my face, say, hey, Magoo, got any money? And then the other kid picked the lot out of my back pocket, and and they uh, started, you know, they put it in front of my face, slapping me, going, you got any money, Magoo? And they called him Mr. Magoo after a cartoon character, and that irritated me. So I, uh, um, then they started throwing the, my wallet over, their, over my head, back, back between them, and I was like, like in the middle, like a, like a pickle in uh, baseball. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then finally, they got one guy jumped on my back, drilled me to the ground, kicked me in the ribs. Oh. took my $3 out of my wallet and threw my wallet back at me and said, thanks for the hot dog, blind boy. And they went off and had a hot dog on my, with my money. And at that time, $3 was all, everything I had, a whole lot of money. And so I, uh, you know, I, that caused uh, some rebellion and then that led to, you know, just certain bad habits that I didn't need to be involved with. And, uh, and then I, uh, had a, I was a, a park in San Diego and went up to these three people and and they said they uh, anyway they just started talking to me about that we're not here by accident that we're here by design and the creator of everything you see you know can change your life from a life of misery into a life of joy and that's when I uh, I decided I'm going back to church I grew up in church and then when I uh, 11 12 when I was shipped off to the school for the visual impaired. I, uh, that's when I stopped going to church, and so I went start, went back to church, and then uh, uh, brought my wife. When I met Kim, got her. Uh, uh, I said, "Hey, you want to go to church with me?" And she said, "That would be wonderful." And so um, that's how I nice heard going as well. What's your uh, What's your favorite part of church? Oh, it's not the singing. <laughs> my wife loves the singing I don't like the singing because I sing like a horse no I sing like a hippopotamus gargling <laughs> I, I, I should not be I should not be demeaning any horses out there <laughs> and, and hippos are too far away they're not going to hear about this. Oh, okay yeah and so uh, but uh, I like I like just the, the preaching part is my favorite part okay interesting uh, well one of the other things and you know we, we lightly touched on this but I want to I get back to it a little bit you've got a black belt 
you achieved your black belt when you were, I, I believe in the movie, like 95% blind or? Um, yeah, well, and my vision at that time was measured at 20 over 400. Well, it was actually 20 over 450. Okay. I wouldn't admit to that. Because <laughs> um, every time my, my eye doctor would try to, you know, say your vision has diminished, I would never, I would never put up the new numbers. It actually was at individual eyes were 20 over 1200 to the sub, but the two eyes together would reduce it down to 20 over 450. And once again, 20 over 200 is considered legally blind. Yeah. And um, so I, uh, so you just picture this. I had a, a, there's a hat in front of your face because there's no macula. The center of the eye, the center of the retina is gone. Mm -hmm. So just wherever you look, there's a hat in front of your face. Now the corner of the eye, you see a, a fuzz or a blur. And all I had to know is where that target was. And, uh, and because I, to get my black belt the way I did, it was one of the toughest black belt tests in the country at the time. And my instructor, John Murphy, he figured if a boxer can go 10 three-minute rounds, his karate fighters are going to go 10, minute, 10 three-minute rounds. He's just going to up the ante by one little element. And that was, it has to be a fresh opponent every round. So it'd be like Ollie fighting Frazier and Holmes and and foreman one after the other every he's, round every round they're they're fresh he's getting tireder and tireder and tireder and so that's why it, it's so grueling and it took me 13 years and three months of con continuous training before i was ready to take on the 10 fighters but that's also and you guys touched on it a little bit but i, I want to touch on it some more because i was watching it and i jokingly like i mean your head holds your brain. So I always tell my daughter, I'm like, don't hit the moneymaker. Like, listen, just let's, let's protect the moneymaker, okay? Yeah. I know you're going to ask, what about yeah. your hands? What about your hands? You're breaking boards. You're hitting back on people. It's not like the the forehead is, you know, or, you're, or you broke your forearm, I believe, or your yeah. arm. Yeah, my arm right here. Your arm. That's That's got to limit some practice time. Uh, yeah, and I had, uh, I had shows. <laughs> I had shows the next day um, when I did that. Uh, yeah, I, uh, but when I do, took that, I glove, I had, I wore, uh, a boxer who has this long, um, I'll just call it like a gauze, yeah. about five or six foot long, and you wrap it around your knuckles to, to pad your knuckles. I, I double, uh, I'd use twice the gauze and I had 12 ounce boxing gloves on. And uh, so uh, when I was done, the only thing that was not hurt were my hands, but you know, I had a. My, I had my nose smashed in the second round, so I was swallowing blood for nine rounds. I had my uh, groin, groin was an open shot. I had it, I had it uh, kicked into my throat more times than I care to talk about. In this eighth round, the guy did it right after the, when they said Yami, which means stop fighting. He drove his knee right between my legs. Oh. And I was uh, doing a standing eight count, um, you know, because I was just, all of a sudden, that, that pain just shot to my head, and I'm going, hey, hey, hey. And the Murphy goes, are you ready? And I, he, gave, he gives you 10 seconds to recover. And all I'm going, uh, uh, you can see my hold, holding my groin with my two hands. If you watch the video all, of the, all, the, all the way through. And, uh, and then I, uh, and then the seventh round, I fought this guy named Gustavo. He was a heavyweight champ of uh, uh, Mexico. And he was just a mean guy. He, what he did for a living was rob people in Tijuana. He robbed the federal. He was a federality. He had robbed the Americans when he come across the border. That's what he did. He ended up dead. He ended up murdered. Um, Jeez. So is it fair to say that the, that group, a maybe I don't, I don't want to say didn't want you to get your black belt, but if you were gonna get it, 
it was not going to be an easy stretch. It was not an easy I mean, they weren't, they weren't giving you anything. You, nope. And you were, it was more than earning, too. It seemed like from the video that I saw, not only was it not being given to you, but it also, it was past like, you're not going to earn this. You're going to earn this on a whole new level that maybe some of us didn't earn it at this level. Uh, people have made that comments to me because I always, I never thought about it that it was actually earned on a level above and beyond the level that other people earned it because they were fully sighted when they got in there and took on those 10 guys. <laughs> I, I never I never threw in the element that I did it without the sight. And yet I still had people uh, punching and kicking and, and uh, you know, hit, hitting and it was... It was fun. It was not fun. What am I saying? I was, it, was, it, was fun. it was one of my single greatest accomplishments. Uh, but it was uh, when after I was done, it was fun. But uh, the the training for it and everything was was crazy. Because give you a real quick rundown. I would warm up with a four hour weight workout, and I got to the point where I could do five hundred push ups, twelve minutes nine seconds. I could bench press. I had 340, and this is weighing in at 168, mind you. So I could bench press twice my weight, and I could curl more than my body weight. Very few uh, lifters uh, can curl their weight. They can press more than the weight, but it's a little more rare to be able to curl your weight or curl more than your weight. And I could do the splits across two chairs and touch my head to the floor. So, wow. And, then, and so I would do a four-hour weight workout, then I'd do 100 kicks on the heavy bag, and then I would have to have this guy hold another bag and I'd chase him. I'd do 100 kicks, take 30 second rest. Do 100 kicks, take 30 second rest. And he's, I'm having to chase him, uh, kicking as he's moving backwards as I'm throwing all these different types of kicks. And then from there, I would do a five mile run, all hills. And then from there, I would then do 10 quarter mile wind sprints. And then I would throw up. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> Sometimes uh, there were times on the eighth or ninth wind sprint. That's when I'd finally lose it. And then I would go to work, go to do my, then I go to perform. So I performed every night. What was your calorie intake so that your hands weren't shaken from just, you know, oh, yeah. not well, having enough food? Oh, uh, I would have a 5,000 calorie, uh, 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 I call it a vitamin drink. And I, and I started them years ago and I, I, I never stopped. Uh, drinking them. I would, uh, Murphy, I, when I started out, I weighed 110 pounds, five foot nine. And then I, I was 168 when I took on the 10 men. And uh, uh, I would, uh, uh, he, he, he first, he said, you need to put some muscle on your body because the women, the old, the women old enough to be my mothers were kicking my hind. <laughs> you know, I'd get in with a woman named Anita, and she would just, you know, I would be every time she kicked or punched or whatever, I wouldn't see. It. I'd just get knocked down to the floor, and I'd be constantly being picked back up. I was getting beat up by the 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 old the the grannies, and uh, so he said, "You need some weight on your body." So he said, "Start lifting weights." So I started lifting weights, and I didn't put on enough. He said, "You need to start taking." Vitamins. So I started taking vitamins. I said you need to start adding protein drinks. So I started adding protein drinks. So um, and then by then I put out went up to 120. Then I had went up to 135 pounds, and, uh, and then it took another 10 years before I hit uh, my maximum, which is uh, you know, 170. But I I weighed in at 168 when I got my first degree black belt, and I weighed in when I got my sixth degree black belt 28 years later. I weighed at one weighed in at one sixty eight and six ounces, so I gained sixty six ounces over a thirty year period. 
That's that's a, that's quite a, that's quite a diet plan. Only to gain six ounces. Yeah, and my father-in-law said, if you would have just went pee before they weighed yourself, you probably would have broke even. That's right. <laughs> you would have done it. So you're a sixth-degree black belt now. Yeah, sixth-degree. Mm-hmm. Have you ever? And I as I, I just wonder this as I see you manipulating cards and understanding the feeling and the motion about things. Have you ever tried or thought about jujitsu as well? Well, the style that we uh, uh, trained with jujitsu was part of the training. Okay. Yeah, it was Wadokai, which was a kind of a cross between jujitsu and uh, uh, Shotokan and uh, Taekwondo. Okay. I mean, it seems like a, just a perfect fit for someone who can understand the relationship of how things move, knowing where they're going to move like you do with cards, that the human body would, would, would have that natural relationship to how your mind works based on how you manipulate cards. Yeah. 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 That, and that was one of the advantages that I had is I have what's called an eidetic memory. Now we'll get into another little Please. sidebar here. Yes, uh, I have my I have a condition called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Charles Bonnet syndrome is the French pronunciation because it was actually do- documented in 1760 by Charles Bonnet, and uh, like I said, in 18, 1760, and the English is Charles Bonnet syndrome, and uh, the acronym is CBS. And the person that probably has done the most studies on this is a guy named Dr. Oliver Sacks, who's a best-selling author, and he died about two years ago. We were hoping to have him in Delft, and we were actually, our film producers were talking to him, uh, but he was finishing off his last book, and then he uh, passed away before we could do anything. He was 83, I remember. Oh, wow. And anyway, but he has a best-selling book called Hallucinations, and another one called Seeing with the Mind's Eye, the Mind's Eye. And uh, he is the one that has done more studies probably on the condition than anyone that I'm aware of. And it's, uh, in, I'll give you a, for instance, in 1990, there were only six documented cases of CBS out there. Now he documented dozens of others. And I'm probably the most extreme case um, out there. And at least most, uh, of all the people that I've met and heard about and we've read about, no one, no one sees the way I do. And now let me kind of explain how I see. First of all, I see basically my subconscious in external space. In other words, I see what you would see in the back of the brain, your brain, like when you're dreaming or imagining things. Okay. I see in front of me. I don't see in my mind like when you're, like I said, you're dreaming. I, I can, I look at, I see it uh, uh, in front of me, just like you are looking at me sitting in front of you. So I, I actually see things. So and yeah, you can, and the reason why for centuries it was not talked about is because. The, the few people that would mention it, they would think you were, they were crazy. You know, they think, well, this person's nuts or he's on LSD or something. And um, so I see, uh, I live in what I too call two basic spectrums, the red spectrum and the blue spectrum. And the blue spectrum, I'm in probably 70% of the time, which is more the artistic. The red spectrum is more, uh, I, I call it the more left brain analytical, mainly because the blue is very um, un- Un, constr- uh, oh, that's a better word. It's it's very random, and I see if you just picture strokes of a paintbrush going up and down, just random strokes of every shade of blue you can imagine, from royal blue to to blue to sky blue, emerald green, green, uh, lime green, all the way down the line, and then and amidst all these colors and pattern pat or patterns of every subconscious image you can imagine. So just picture yourself underwater 
with the light shining in, in a, uh, with all different colors of blue, of the blue spectrum breaking down and everything floating like thousands of fish, except instead of being fish, it's everything you can imagine. And the, the, the images are all two dimensional, but they're all layered three dimensionally. And then when uh, the red spectrum, I see everything in geometric patterns. The, it, it starts with a ba background of like either bricks, like a brick wall, or like if you zoomed in on a, a, a screen door where it's perfect squares. That's the background. And then in the concrete, where the, 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 if you look at the concrete in between the bricks, it's always a deep maroon, which is one of my favorite colors. And then, in the, and then the bricks would be a different shades of red. And then in amongst all this is just circles and squares and every geometric shape you can imagine. The thing about what's interesting about CBS, at least in my case, is I can zoom in on any particular image. You know, they're all out there, and I can sit there and zoom in on an image. Say, I want to see my pretty wife. I can zoom in on her, and I can actually have her zoom in, and I have, have the image circle all the way around to the front, to the back, up, down, sideways. Uh, and how this is handy is in a number of ways. Like one of the, for instance, is I uh, designed and built houses. Um, I, I built uh, our other, well, I just helped design this patio that you're seeing out here. It's a 2,000 square foot deck around our pool. Um, but our other house, um, I would sit in a chair and I would watch in full, in like virtual reality. Just picture, I live in my own virtual reality. I would see the beams going down and the cross beams going across and I'd spin them around and go, okay, now I have to anchor them over there. And my wife, Kim, will watch me uh, design everything all in my head sitting in a chair thousand different cuts and then go and build it without having a single piece of paper i tell at that time it was my dad my cutter i said okay this board has to be 192 and a quarter inches and we built this three level three level deck and i can't i can't remember how many square feet it was but it uh, with hanging swings and built-in flower flower uh flower areas and hanging swings and stairways and so forth and uh, uh, so anyway that's the cool thing is I can design things and where it's functional with my cards is when I'm sitting at a dinner table I will be practicing under the table I'll have it so I'm not getting people's attention because they see cards in my hand they're thinking that I want to perform uh -uh, I don't want to perform I'm 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 off work I, I, but it doesn't mean I don't want to practice. So I will have the cards under my table. And I'm, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm looking down and I'm watching my hands do a particular move. And I don't see it flesh-like, like a human, like you would see it. I see it, my hands constructed almost using geometric uh, shapes into the image of a hand. And, and the colors are not flesh colored at all. It depends on what spectrum I'm in, depends on the, uh, the patterns, the color uh, variations. And so right now I'm watching my hand, deal out the card, put it in the deck, and I'll sit there and, and I'll be analyzing something at the dinner table and I'm watching it and I'm seeing it come out, go in, but yet there's a solid object between me and my hands. And yet I will see it. But now the odd thing, now here's the funny thing, if I, look to the left or to the right and do and keep moving, I no longer can see it. Then I'm seeing it in my mind. Okay. I have to I have to physically be looking towards the object to have this work, which is totally doesn't make any sense. Uh, one of, of uh, Danny Corum, uh, Luke Corum, 
his uh, dad uh, is a friend of mine. In fact, he's the one that talked to, uh, told his son, you need to do a, a, a documentary film on Richard Turner. And Danny and I, we, he's a, he was a magician for years. And um, uh, we traveled, we knew all the same people for almost a half a century. Di Vernon and Charlie Miller and, you know, just the different, Ed Marlowe, different great magicians throughout the last cent, half century. And um, one, one that fascinates him is like when I look into my medicine cabinet, I will I'll see, okay, I'm looking for the ballistics or something like for, uh, something on your lip I'm going up. Oh, I see everything on the front, first row, second row, and I go all the way up, oh, there it is. And, and yet my, my cupboard door is closed, but yet I can see everything, I, every item in there. But now if I turn away from it, then I can't do that. And yet I can see it fine, even though the door's closed, I can see in front of me everything in that cabinet. Uh, but if I turn away, I then have to use it, I have to see it in, the, in, my, in my mind the same way a person would. But, but where I use it all the time is I can write in the air. Like I, rem- I wanna remember a phone number, I'll write it down in the air, I'll see it floating in the air, just like you'd see it on a computer screen or on a, a, uh, what they call whiteboards nowadays. Yep. We, called them, we grew up calling them chalkboards. I, I got hit by many eraser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you too. I've thrown up many eraser. But I'll see it just like on a chalkboard. I have, like I said, what, what's called a eidetic memory. I'll take a picture of it, and then I never forget it. I'm memorizing scripts, or um, I, I wrote your name down before you got here. Um, so I remember your name. And I, I just write it down, take a picture of it in my head, and, it, and it, then I just file it away. And then I can, like, if I'm stuck on a place that I'm working on a script for a show, and I and I have just three words, and I will be able to zoom all the way down to that one spot, and then find those three words, have them come up. Ah, oh, there they are! Bing, 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 and then continue, and then continue on. Do you think that that part of your brain was somewhat activated that made you a good artist when you had sight? That yes, because I had a a, a, a pretty good uh, a good memory. Like I said, I don't, I don't think there's such thing as a photographic memory, but uh, um, it was from what, looking at a picture in a National Geographic that was not with me when I when I did the re, the replication of what I saw in that in that picture. It was a full sea seascape with the you know the the bottom of the of the ocean floor and then coral going up and and uh, different types of fish. And then of course I had to put a shark in there and a jellyfish and, <laughs> and I, I drew all these things, but it, it came from a picture that was left in my mind from looking at a National Geographic. Do you, and we're sitting in this beautiful home, this is a, this is a home, this is a life that Cards built. When you started this, did you think about that? Like where this could go? Or do you sit back sometimes as you're as you're manipulating cards and you're and you're with your wife and I, I, there's a famous uh, comedian Joe Rogan uh, and his, his wife you know told him once she goes hey your mouth did this like all these uh-huh. like your, uh-huh. your 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 mouth did this and your hands did this mm-hmm. they design from what you say right they they've yeah. designed it but they also they're not only building and designing but just what you're doing right now with cards did this how much time do you take in in reflection and go or did you know that you were going to you were going to be here someday well i had visions of what i was going to do before everyone else did in fact i was told you can't do that you know you cannot make a living with a deck of cards i was told what i couldn't do and all that did was just 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't discourage me. Watch. And then, of course, the rest is history after that. But, um, uh, but I do, I am constantly amazed that 52 pieces of paper, just 52 pieces of paper, you know, I've been seeing, I think the analytics show, I've been seeing them shows uh, in 214 countries. And when I did a special for China, then there's over a billion people have seen my card work and seen my old ugly mug. And, um, <laughs> and, and I've had the privilege of entertaining just some of the most amazing people over the past half century, like Johnny Carson and Gene Kelly, Gregory Peck, Jimmy Stewart, Bob Hope. And um, I, I can say that I've been kidnapped and hugged by the three-time boxing heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, a wonderful friend, wonderful man. Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, to swing in on the trapeze, working out with other famous celebrities, to uh, um, uh, speaking, I, I, what I do now and I enjoy a lot of speaking to Fortune 500 companies, the businesses around the country and around the world. And I have a program called Winning with a Hand You've Been Dealt, D-E-A-L-T, and that's where they got the name for the film, was from my program called DELT. And of course, DELT is an acronym. Acronym D stands for dreams. Mm -hmm. Our dreams fuel the fire in our belly. E stands for excellence. What opens doors is becoming an expert, achieving a state of excellence. And I got that drilled into my head from my first director, Steve Terrell, who told me, he said, if you become the best in the world, you will earn the respect of others and that will open doors for you. A stands for analysis. Socrates famously said, unexamined life is not worth living. So you know, we must analyze our obstacles, analyze our assets. L stands for loyalty. We must be loyal to our company, colleagues, customers, values such as honesty and integrity. And there were times that I uh, was not loyal. I got that drilled into my head from my karate master, John Murphy. One time when I was, I was with the Lambs Players Theater Company that I grew up in from 72 to 78, I was with. And uh, they used a place called Sidekick Enterprises, ran by one of Chuck Norris's black belts, John Roberts. And he was a guy who murdered somebody, and he went and served his time and opened up a school for boys. And, uh, and so we got, they had our printing down there, and I'd go down there, and I'd train with them. One time, one of our guys saw me at their school training, and uh, Murphy was very touchy about his students going off to other schools, because back then, yeah, there was uh, a number of his top students and black belts that formed their own school or went off with some other system. And, and, uh, and there was back then, there was literally battles like in the old Bruce Lee movies. We're talking about back in the 70, 70, 70 to, through the 70s, basically, is when okay. it was really rough. Because in our school was in Tijuana. And the reason why it was in Tijuana is because he didn't, Murphy didn't want to deal with lawsuits and and because uh, there was there was a very there was, there was just no rules and he was actually the founder of martial arts in uh, Mexico. Got his black belt back in 1950s, 57. Mar I think Norris got his in 50. He's a year ahead of Norris. And um, anyway, so um, right now, again, now here's one of those times I'm, <laughs> on, I'm getting on my story inside of a story inside of a story. Hey, Jane Wiles, I just want to let you know. Better stories than me, hands down. My my friend Jane Wells at CNBC. She is. She's like, I like your podcast, but you don't have enough guests on that have more interesting stories than you. And I've said, I only ask questions because your stories are so fascinating. So there you go, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got to think. What was I? Uh, I had a point that I was getting around to. 
um, but I can't remember what it was. Well, you were so we were, um, and, and I'm I'm lost in the story, but um, you <laughs> you you went to one of Chuck Norris's schools. Oh yeah, practice. loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. We're loyalty, about loyalty. Yes. Yeah, the and acronym then, of Dell. We're on L. Right. Loyalty. Yeah, L. L. And loyalty. See, we did it. We How, did. How did we do that? <laughs> We are. There's a professional here somewhere. <laughs> Managed to steer the poor guy back around. I think you're steering me. Topic, but we're good. Topic on hand, in hand. Yeah. So loyalty, and so, um, and then when I got back to our school, a guy named Terry Crook, he and I, we uh, we taught that particular class. He was kicking the crap out of me. All of a sudden, you know, I was catching his sidekicks, and he was, I was going. He literally kicked me right out the door of the dojo. And I land on the concrete and the, on the, in the driveway. I said, what are, you, what are you kicking me so hard for? And he goes, I heard about you at, at uh, John Roberts' place. Are you you're going, are you uh, turning your back on, on, on uh, Murphy? And I said, no, no. Our, we just have our printing down there at the theater company I'm with. And so I was, I was, he offered me to work out there anytime I want for nothing. And so I was just taking advantage of that. Because, uh, like I said, Murphy had people that left his school. And, uh, and so we have these battles between the schools where we'd go in and someone from the other school would come in and rough up our students because he didn't have any of his top brown or brown belts there or black belts there. And then he would tell uh, John Douglas, who was his, no, his, his pistolero, his number one pistolero, and he'd say, come on, grab, your, grab all your top brown belts. We're going to go touch them up, which meant we're going to go hurt them but not kill them. <laughs> and so we would go down to their school and they would say, bring out your black belt, bring them out. Douglas wants to fight. And then we'd just go down the line and, you know, and fight whatever. And anyway, it was kind of, uh, it was, it was a little different in those days than the way it is today. So anyway, I learned loyalty from him. So I never, uh, I never went to another school without first getting his permission. I've traveled all over the, I lived in different places throughout the country. And so when I left San Diego, I was, you know, the school was in Tijuana and San Diego, um, and I moved to Dallas and I started training under Grandmaster Roy Kerbin. I first asked Murphy's permission, and I, when I would increase uh, degrees in belts, I would uh, always go through Murphy, um, just because uh, uh, that loyalty taught me what loyalty meant. And then the last uh, letter in the DELT, D-E-A-L-T, is tenacity. You know, tenacity is what breaks down the barrier that stands between us and our dream. And I, growing up, as I said, had basically two dreams. I actually had three dreams. One was I wanted to kick like Bruce Lee or Chuck Norris. Two, I wanted strength like Charlton Heston demonstrated in the movie Ben-Hur. And the other mm-hmm. one was to be a card shark like James Garner's character from the TV series Maverick. Yep. So, and those are the, my focuses. And that's where all my tenacity was focused on. Wow. And, I mean, it's... It's amazing, because, and, I, and I wonder what you're, in this modern world where, I, Tim Kennedy said this, and, I, and, I, and I, I would like to get your take on this. He goes, hard times create hard men. Hard men work hard to create easier times that create soft times and soft men. And mm. we get weak, and, it cre- and we need hard men to create hard times to get out of those soft times. And it seems like we're in kind of a soft time yes. right now. <laughs> and some of and uh, and some of the our kids and so on uh, have some of those soft times and need to uh, be uh, kicked back into a, a shape, if you would. Yeah, they need they need a little a, a push, if you will. Mm. That I think everyone's afraid 
of of the push. Oh and, yeah, no. And nowadays everything's so politically correct. You can't even uh, you can't even say uh, get your button gear. You know, you have to yeah. be so delicate about even what you say. Anyway, it's it's it's, 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 it's interesting. I I have, I have two. Ta- I'd like to get your take on this. Uh, so I've. I grew up with, hey, you know, bootstrap, you get knocked down, you get back up. And I've subtly changed that just just through my own life and life experiences. And you get knocked down, see see what you got knocked into first. Before you jump right back up, find out what you got knocked into. Because you might have got knocked into a bed of roses. And just because you're falling down, you think you have to get back up again. I use the, there's this story that the bird flies south for the winter. It's the last bird flying south. And he freezes in the sky and falls down. It falls down, frozen, and a cow comes along, poops on the bird, and it thaws the bird up, and the bird starts singing because it's so happy it's alive, and a fox comes along and eats the bird. And the moral of the story is, hey, you know, uh, one, leave on time. Two, when you're, you're covered in crap, keep your mouth shut. And three, just because someone craps on you doesn't make him your enemy. You know, and so it's, it's one of these things where... It, it's, you got to get back up. You got you got to mm. keep moving forward in some capacity, but know your surroundings first. Get get your bearings, if you will. Well, that's very very uh, intuitive. You definitely need to have your bearings, otherwise <laughs> you're gonna you get back up, and like you said, you might just turn around and walk off a cliff, <laughs> which I have done, mind you. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you are you are the hardened entrepreneur. It seems like before that was uh, a cliche that it is today. You, you, you blazed your own path, did your own thing, learned from the people above you, which I, I don't think enough entrepreneurs do. It seems like entrepreneurs run in their own way and there's, there's successful people around them, but they're like, no, 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 I want to do this my way. And it seems like you've manipulated the best of both worlds. You've done it your way, but you've also learned from the masters. I, I've been very blessed in that way. I will agree, I will agree with you on that. And I understand what you're saying with some of the, the kids, especially these tech wizards. Yeah. You know, they, they come up with things and it's astounding what they do and their focus and direction. Um, but, you know, they had, a lot of times they did not have a few knocks um, to teach them a little bit of wisdom. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we see that with athletes as well, as much as they get paid. Mm-hmm. I always say, I go, uh, if, if you gave me that much money when I was 21, I think this kid would look like an angel. Uh, I just, you know, I don't, I can't imagine the mental capacity of, of getting 20, 40, 50, a hundred million dollars when you're 21 years old. And then people and the pressure of that. And then people saying, I can't believe you did X, Y, and Z. Well, I can't believe we probably failed as far as education goes in preparing someone for that. Or more importantly, why are we giving some person with, without that so much of that? Does that make sense? I I got lost on without that so much of that without well so, so they, much they, of that they went money, they, they, a lot yeah they don't come from money mm-hmm. and then you're given twenty million dollars or a hundred million dollars and then you're appalled by their actions. Well, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, separate let's let's separate the two. There's you're you're giving a twenty one year old a lot of weight and a lot of responsibility that ninety nine point nine percent of twenty one year olds can't do. Can't do. So <laughs> that was what the market will bear. If the market will bear, you know, enough people watching that they are they can uh, pay the athletes what they do. More power to them. Yeah. Um, but you know, with that comes, uh, like you said, a certain level of responsibility. And at that age, uh, let me put it this way. 
I knew more at 16 than I do today at 64. Only because I thought I knew everything at 16 and I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to, uh, one second here. After a quick little pause there, um, qu question in a hard left turn as I do. Um, is there someone or have you found anyone that you're going to depart your wisdom of what you know on to? Most of what I do requires so much focused effort. I put in 10 to 20 hours a day, practice seven days a week, and I sustained that for 26 years straight. The only time I wasn't practicing is when I was training. And not, not that many people are that nuts. And then when my son was born, now I put in only three to 10 hours a day, maybe 13 or 14 on a good day. And that's because I have to deal with computer and email and replying to business people and so forth. And so that you can't practice while, you, uh, while you're on the computer. The computer has narrowed my focus down. But I do have a couple people out there that have are very obsessed about this particular work. One is named Jason England. Very good card man. He started working on one of my moves 28 years ago. And uh, he's probably the one I was showing to you earlier. He and another guy named Paul Gertner are probably the two best at that particular move. And um, but he, he, he's one of them. But... It's, it's, I have a, another friend named David Mufadzian. He was the creator of the TV series Home Improvement with Tim Allen. Yes. And uh, What Women Want with Mel Gibson and movies like that. But we've been, we were in the same theater company, The Lambs Players, back in the 70s. And uh, Except he's gone on to heights way up there. <laughs> and uh, he's a very generous man, a wonderful brother. And uh, he when the first uh, trailer that Delp put out, the last line on it is it was when once Rick is gone, no one will be able to do it. And I mean, I would agree with that. Uh, are you in your idea of legacy? Are you um, are you kind of sad that once you're gone, no one will be able to do it? Like, is this this dying this dying art form that is no? Because I unfortunately. It's uh, most everything I do and have done has been seen, documented, filmed. Uh, you know, for the like I said, for the Delt film, for um, when I was on Penn and Teller, Fool Us, uh, for all the way back in nineteen when I filmed on That's Incredible in nineteen eighty one with John Davidson, Fran Targeton, and one of my favorite shows. Yeah, growing up, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I was on that. You know, so people can watch and see the. You know, a century, almost a century worth of my stuff here, there, or somewhere. And so I'm, I would have liked my son to, to try to do it, but then I realized when I got, I realized he's too smart to try to do it, to do what his dad <laughs> And like I said, you know, you have to have a certain type of obsession and a certain type of a body makeup. And, uh, you know, that's why I haven't put on a, any weight in my entire life. And, as my wife says, no one wants to hear about your problems <laughs> uh, because I, uh, you know, I just have this energy level that uh, is just kind of, I, I think, unusual. And my sister has it too. Your my, sister very accomplished, by the way. Um, I, I didn't know if you yes. wanted to touch on that, but I mean, she oh, is a, a a top construction company in Arizona. No, she. Oh, yeah, she owned and found founded one of the largest construction companies in the state of Idaho. 
Idaho, sorry. Uh-huh. And uh, she does giant projects, big multi-million dollar projects, 150, 20, 30, 45 million dollar projects. Does she see the way you do as well? She has CBS, but not uh, not in as uh, the same degree that I do. Okay. So, um, but she is one of the few that does not see black like a standard uh, a blind person. Does and for uh, ignorance, um, does does that help in rest because you don't see oh, black? That um, that that's a, a very interesting question because sometimes it can drive me nuts because <laughs> I will see what I believe is out there. Um, we're, I'll have to ask my wife: Is it dark out yet? Because I'll still be in a bright, sunny spectrum, believing that it's sunny outside, and uh, I'll get in bed, and I can be in a vault, locked in a vault with not a bit of light, and yet I'm seeing vivid blues, every shade of blue, greens, yellows, whatever it happens to be, and they will be so vivid that uh, it it can keep me awake. And so uh, that, that... is uh, that is uh, one of the issues but it's not that often because i will um when we take our walk at night with our dog judah you know that's when i will start realizing and having my brain adjust to the fact that we're moving into night and then i I, uh, my spectrum will then darken to a degree and uh, the the brighter things will not be so predominant because that does does keep me uh, that can keep me awake before we started recording, you had said you just got done with a trip around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Juan, a couple of your favorite countries you've been to. Oh, gosh. China. China? Um, okay. I, my, I did a 32-city tour through China performing in the most beautiful theaters in the world. I mean, the, the, the screen that my cards were projected on were four stories high and five stories across. Every theater, the backstage was as big as a football field. Every dressing room had a grand piano in it. And uh, they just treated us royally when we were there. My son went on the tour with me and my wife came in for a, for a few couple weeks during the tour, but we were there for two months and 11 days all together. And um, so China was a wonderful uh, country. We were in uh, tour of Japan again last year. And then I just returned from filming a television special in Germany. It's called Showdown of the World's Greatest Magicians. And uh, um, before I go further, when will this air so I don't get ahead of this other show? Uh, this will, I'll put this out uh, this coming Tuesday. Okay. Then I will, then I will, I will. People, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to, you're going to find it on the internet. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Because, uh, uh, by contract, I can't put any put out any more information than what I've just said. <laughs> Perfect. Now, is there? Um, <clears throat> so your son travels with you quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been all over the world. With all me. over the world with you. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite parts uh, of the movie is the fact that you just unapologetically, it seemed like, just took your son. You're like, he's coming with me. And it wasn't as, it, it never came across as I'm taking my son because I need help. It's like, I'm taking my son because I want him to be, a, I want him to be with me. I want him to be a part of this journey. Oh, yeah. It was never, it was never, the thought of help was never even entered into the equation. That, uh, yeah. I thought of it from that point of view. And it, it never came across helpful. that way. It was always, it was, <laughs> he's right upstairs. He might be able to hear you say that. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> he knows it. And, uh, yeah, no, he's my 
best traveling friend. I, we've, we've taken him since he was born. My wife and I performed together for nine years. And um, she was misguided to my Mr. Cheat. I, you know, I played a riverboat gambler, you know, because I was demonstrating gambling moves mm-hmm. used by the, the riverboat gambler. And she had a character misguided. Uh, we were kind of like a George Burns, Gracie Allen uh, duel. Okay. And she was funny as all get out. I've seen her take down CEOs and four-star generals and, uh, you know, with her humor. And so she was just, she was fantastic. Anyway, so we, um, Asa was born, and we, we, we would throw him in the back of the car, go to a show, and we'd tell the people, here, hold, hold Asa. I mean, we're at, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, called under orders to speak, uh, at, it was at DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and, um, and he, he was sitting in the front row with all these, you know, military officers, and... Uh, you hear this, I say, I'm Richard Turner and I'm a cheat, card cheat. And he goes, no, you're not. You're a boy. He was two, two and a half years old at the time. <laughs> and you hear him in the back, no, you're not. You're a boy. Um, so anyway, um, so he, we just took him with us. No one ever uh, complained about it or said anything about it. And, and uh, I, I figured if, for me, going and having these opportunities, mean very little if I don't get to share it with my wife and my son. Otherwise, you know, why have it if you if you can't share it? And I brought my brother, my brother Mike, and uh, other relatives, Lori, to, we took her through all through England and France with us on a trip. And uh, so it's, it's so, so much more fun to have these opportunities and to be able to see the world and have people uh, bring you out and treat you so well and have your family with you. Ace and I were just in Italy in May. We just returned from Germany and, and Korea uh, last uh, couple weeks ago. And then right the month before that, we were in uh, Italy. And uh, I told him, if you want me, my whole family's coming. My wife, my son, and my son's girlfriend. So now Victoria, his uh, girlfriend, uh, travels with us sometimes. And we had a blast. Nice. And you uh, you talked about earlier, uh, Fortune 500 companies call you and they want you to mm-hmm. come speak. And I, I'm assuming it's more on, is, is it, or I should just ask, maybe it's more on the mental determination of, of what you've accomplished, what you've done, that it's more motivational of well, I drive. Actually, I actually call myself an inspirational speaker rather than a motivational speaker. This okay. is going to almost sound like I'm almost going to take away opportunity. <laughs> for myself because I say those that need to be mo- those that have it don't need it okay those that have it don't need to be motivated those that need it don't have it it doesn't mean they can't get it but uh, I call myself an inspirational speaker uh, for instance Tiger Wood Tiger Wood did not need to uh, see Michael Jordan walk on air and put that ball in the hoop to get out there and practice driving on the range, yet he was still inspired by Jordan. I'm just, I don't know anything about either of the two. Okay. Those are his friends. Sure. For me, I don't, I, I'm inspired by Woods when he was in his prime, how he could hit a golf ball. I was inspired by Jordan, how he could walk on air and put that ball in the hoop. Um, I remember back in 76, little Nadia Comaneci did something that no man had ever done in the history of the Olympics. She got a f- perfect 10. First time anyone ever got a 10 in the Olympics. 
Now that inspired me, but I didn't need his motivation to continue my own personal practicing average of 14 hours a day. So when I speak to companies, um, most of them have already hired the top end in the areas that they're looking for. So um, I, it is motivational, but I think it's more inspirational. And I weave all my card work in my DELT program, D-E-A-L-T, as we talked earlier mm -hmm. about. And then I have personal examples that I will relate to each of those letters and then, and then relate them back uh, a lot of times to the cards and the things that I do with the cards. Now, in, in your global travels, in, in, the, in the companies that you've um, spoken to, and in the, the celebrities that you, you've, you've made friends with, and, and you, you've just kind of watched this whole explosion in entertainment happen, you know, from your, from your time starting in the 70s until now, what, is, what shocked you the most about what's transgressed in entertainment since you've been a part of it? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, probably a lot of the, the moral values of how, how they've uh, so much, so, uh, almost anything is acceptable now, and then nothing's acceptable. I think that's probably what irritates me is everything's acceptable, but nothing's acceptable. If, you're, if you don't accept what I like, then you're not acceptable. But you have to accept what I like. Um, <laughs> it's 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 it seems like it's there is it. We we've changed from understanding what people say and maybe not maybe not agreeing, mm -hmm. but not criticizing versus my way or the highway. Right. But only my way or the highway. Right. I have a friend. I'll take the opposite side of him, just just so that we can show other people that we can have opposite views and yet be friends. And we, we've been on the opposite uh, spectrum on certain things, and we've been friends for 40 years. And we were just talking, we were just laughing about that recently. He was actually a photographer for National Geographic uh, in years past, and he he videoed and filmed my wedding and my also my footage from my black belt test he was the photographer there uh, so we've been friends for a long time and he's a very very good photographer and uh, and we, we will purposely take two ends of the uh, of a argument or a spectrum or a position just so that we can show people hey we can still be friends and yet not agree with each other oh, I do it with my neighbor Trey we'll sit in the driveway and the kids will play and the dogs are running around playing now we just pull the chairs up, neighbors come in, and I will purposely, like yourself, pick pick it just an opposite side, and we'll mm -hmm. have a conversation. And where some people get uncomfortable, it's like, oh man, you guys are disagreeing, like, I don't want, no, 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 we're having fun. Yeah, this exactly. is just fun. Exactly, and, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I start, I get wound up and more wound up and more wound up, and yeah. and, uh, and, and, it's, and at, this, at the end, we're smiling and hugging, and that's yeah. the way it should be. It is, my, one of my neighbors, Mike, he, uh, his, his his hero is Neil Armstrong, mm -hmm. and I said I think it's I, I think that's great. He's an excellent actor. He goes, what do you mean? I go, come on, Mike. You know we've never been to the moon, and he's just blaspheming him, Mike. And he's a marine, and he is just he's like Jason. You you're hitting the hot button. I'm like, oh, Mike, come on. We all know it was faked, and I'm just ribbing him yeah. a little bit, and then he ribs me back on something, and but it, you know, yeah. It, yeah, I do this exact same thing, and and like the director of Delt, he. We've done a lot of when we did a lot of the premieres and stuff. You know, he would purposely 
Well, he put it in his words. You never know what's going to come out of his mouth next. <laughs> and so they have they have so much footage, and and they you know to turn into an hour and a half film was mm-hmm. really really hard for them because they followed us around for four years, uh, of, 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 of circling the globe, and he would actually live with us at times. And so I never knew when the cameras were on. They never knew what what was like I said what was going to come out of my mouth because. Uh, uh, I, I uh, as my wife says, I'm not afraid. <laughs> and that, and that's a beautiful thing because I think there needs to be more people that that aren't afraid and speak. Yeah. What um, what was that like? I mean, I, I know you said you didn't know when the cameras were on or off, but just the knowing aspect. Or two questions actually. What was the knowing aspect of you're gonna you know you're gonna be on film. You know that your story's being told. A, mm-hmm. and then B. Your CBS, how did that see, did it, how did it change when you knew you were being filmed? When the camera was in front of you, did it change? Sometimes it did. When I knew it was there and I, uh, I sometimes wouldn't have been as natural as if I didn't know it was there. Okay. And um, I have to say every time I went to the restroom and I knew I was wired, I would stand <laughs> on toilet and I hit the toilet and go, oh no, there's a royal flash! <laughs> and I was like, I'd bring, bring the microphone right down the toilet as it's flushing. Never. And so I don't know how many times the sound guy, Sean, had that in, in his ear. Um, For sure we've got a bloopers reel. For Delt yeah, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And then at the end of the DVD, there was like 20 minutes of footage of some of these other card guys doing some of their stuff. And another 20 minutes or so of, of bonus footage outtakes that, that it just didn't make the cut. But it was already cut into the film. And I have to give these guys credit. Uh, Luke Corum, Russell Groves, Bradley Jackson, uh, uh, Jake Hamilton was the, one of the camera guys, and Sean McCormick was the sound guy. But particularly Luke Corum and uh, Russell Groves, because Luke, you know, he grew up a magi- uh, the son of a magician, mm-hmm. and he just had a, he had the same type focus as as I I do. And I really appreciate that. He wanted everything perfect. If there was a single frame of a frame that wasn't exactly the way he wanted, he would have it adjusted till it was perfect. And uh, we really appreciate each other uh, in that regard. So he, uh, but the only thing with him is he's all right brain. He's so creative. He forgets his keys. He forgets his camera on the plane. <laughs> he has no left brain. Capabilities, but he is very his creative side is just off the charts, and he just they just did a beautiful job. And like I said, in particular Luke, because he was the one that was directing the whole uh, dance, if you would. It was okay. putting do that, putting that film together was like a, uh, orchestrating a dance, and he just did an amazing job. So, qu- question for you, on for the 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 movie buff kids that are hearing these stories. When I think back to Ocean's Eleven here as it's playing in the background and they're going after this big gamble of trying to rob the Bellagio, rob a casino. What is, what's been the one or two things in your life where it was a gamble to do? But as soon as you did it, when it, I mean, it, it played out, but there was rough going, there was lots of planning. Oh, gosh. Or has it all been more methodical? It was probably more, I would say, more methodical. I uh, I haven't done that much 
gambling. And it's one thing to do a thousand kicks on the bag, but can you really hit a moving target? You know, you, you have to find out. And so those, that, those are a few of the times that um, were, were a little risky. And, um, uh, and my life and hands and other things could have been on the line. Have you, uh, with what your son's graduate of college was four years from the, you know, from filming to, to end. So we saw your son go away to college, an emotional moment mm-hmm. for you. Uh, as a dad who's got a daughter here, is, I take her everywhere I can with me, the, the precious moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your advice for me to prepare for my, I mean, I know it's, it's, long, it's short years and long nights. And, and on the, you, you, next thing you know, your kids are, are an adult. But mm-hmm. what do you, how did, how did you prepare or how would you say someone can prepare for, for those, those big moments when your kids are moving on? I say experience all, every little moment. Okay. I, would, I could actually feel my son growing. Well, we, we started off, he grew up in a, king, a queen-size bed because <laughs> I would lay in with him. You know, um, and lay next to him. We would just sit there and I'd tell him stories. And he, if he thought they were out of my you know fantasies, but they were all my personal life experiences, and we would just talk. And I'd tell him these things, and I would touch him, and I could literally feel him grow. And um, and so uh, take every take every little moment. Be with your family. My favorite time of the day is when my wife Kim comes home. She's my treasure. Uh, I would give all that I have, my hands, my skills, my talent, and what wealth I have, I would give it all up rather than lose her. Um, she, and, and I would say the same thing about my son, but my wife, you know, she's, a, she's the pearl of great price. The Bible talks about he was the man who sold everything for that pearl of great price. Um, and that, that is my wife, Kim. And so we, I love the time that we have together, and you know, be focused on your objective. Um, you know, which I was focused on that. But at the same time, live your life. Don't let your life live by live live away from you. If that may even makes sense, it's bad grammar. But don't let life go by without living it. And that was one of the things I would tell Luke Corum, the director of film, the director of Delt. I said. You, know, you were asking me earlier, how was it having cameras on you for all those years and wherever I went? I, I would tell Luke and I say, just enjoy the moment. Forget about the end product. Right now, enjoy what we're doing. There's a little bit of stress. We're flying to Costa Rica to film me as I'm hunting these big, giant, seven foot sailfish. And I eat the eye of a mahi mahi. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Oh, Some yeah. of the crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, but I would tell him as we're doing it, don't forget about the, the, the work, enjoy the work, enjoy the process, you know, because there's so much of it that is, you know, that is part of what life is all about. We're here to create and to, you know, and to, well, to, I, we're here to create and to, to experience things. And so I would say, forget about the end product, because once the film's done, then you've done editing, now you've got, you, you finished it, Oh, now you're depressed. What do I do now? You know, so enjoy the process. That's what I say. Whatever it is, whatever you're doing, enjoy the journey. Don't worry about the end product. Focus on the end product, but enjoy getting there. So real real quick before, before we get into some of the crazy stuff, 
that, that I saw and that you uh-huh. brought up. But I think more important, and more important, um, and some of this podcast is very selfishly me, uh, but if I'm taking one thing away from this, is that unlike a lot of people, and I think more by choice and more by drive and more by everything else, and I get a little misty out as I say this, <laughs> you've lived a real love story. I have lived a real love story. I have lived a I'm almost amazing. I'm almost now upset that Delt wasn't a love story about you and your wife and you instead know, of about Yeah. And you would know what? You, some of the we have, I have did a podcast for a woman that she heard things in family counseling and, and her that's her whole the whole direction. She calls it a love story. So it depends on who you who's who's watching it. A lot of the women look at it as a love story. See I gotta rewatch it now after this part of the conversation because it's the way you talked about it, I mean, and you the, through this whole conversation, there, there hasn't been a time where you really haven't had a smile on your face in some way and a joy on your face. But it changed when you were talking about your wife. Mm-hmm. Physically, you changed a little bit mm-hmm. in in just raw happiness and joy. And we've been together twenty eight years, and every day is better than the day before. And we, when I, I I got blessed. I got lucky. I got blessed with Kim. You know, she's from mountains of Montana, and she just grew up uh, in a small town. And what, what? I'm from Montana. What part? She's from Libby. I Whitefish. Whitefish. Oh, Kim I mean, and right. I climbed. Kim and I climbed to the top of Whitefish Mountain. Yeah. A few years ago, seven miles up. Yeah. And we did it. And 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 when and we started, but got up about mile up, and we're going. Oh my gosh, this is really tra- tra- steep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and we it was too it's more treacherous to go back down. We were going to take the ski lift back was, down. Yeah, that's the reward. You yeah, hike up, exactly. you take the ski lift down. And so we're climbing up this mountain, and in all I how I'm I have my shirt off, rolled up into like a snake in a roll. With her right hand, she's holding the front end of the shirt. With my right hand, I'm holding the back end of the shirt, and I'm just going the direction of this shirt. And she, what we loved about each other is that our she is. Or love, let me put it. What I loved about her is her adventurous nature and the fact that she wasn't afraid to get out there and I'll put say be a man but be a, be a woman and uh, so like I said she and she's I'm following behind her and I didn't know at different points we're walking along a ridge where if I would have taken a, a step to the right that's a 30 40 foot drop straight down we're going across and we have to cross a few streams in the process and then, as you'll know, that last mile was like almost a 45-degree angle, and it was all slippery rock. And we got there right as they closed the door for the ski lift. And we were, we're going, please, you gotta get, let us get a ride down. They go, oh, all right, you guys look like you could use a ride down. But, but anyway, my point is, we've, we love adventure together. We've, we like chasing roller coasters. We've got to fly in formation, AT-38 supersonic jet fighters. She's in one, I'm in another. And mind you, this is a four-star approval to have something like this. And as far as we understood at the time, we were the only husband and wife civilians that got to go in formation and fly in separate jets and go in formation. Anyway, and so I'd say, let's pull 5Gs. Okay, boom, and let's pull 5.5Gs. Boom, that's 6Gs. We got the six, <laughs> 6. 6.2Gs. And uh, what I would do, she would do. What she would do, I would do. The only thing is I have to say, 
Okay, Kim, I'm going to get the cats out of the bag. If you ever hear this, she cheated on me last year. She went with her family, all the girls out. She went skydiving without me. We were supposed to go skydiving together. She went skydiving without me. She went skydiving without you. Without me, yes. Well, now, has your son gone skydiving yet? No, he hasn't done that. See, now you too. You got... There you go. You got a little moment there. That's right. It might be father and son. Of course, uh, we have gone bungee jumping together. Oh. And uh, I was the one that pulled the cord, and it was me, Kim, and my brother all at the same time. 180 foot straight down. So it's fun. Years ago, and you, this was on the film, uh, and I want to talk to you about this. Uh, years ago, I was uh, had the pleasure of working with a gentleman named Anthony Shea. And one of Anthony's passions is fishing. Mm-hmm. And fishing. Uh, he did, he redesigned yachts on the West Coast mm-hmm. uh, for how they fish. Uh, oh. His captain, Steve Lasley, has won more money in fishing tournaments than, he's the Michael Jordan of fishing, uh-huh. captains. Because of his, uh, probably partly due to the vessel that he, the guy built, built for Yeah, the, the vessel, but before that, Back in the day, he would go around Cabo at two knots, and every time the radar changed, he would trace it. Uh, and I mean, so driven like you, right? Yeah. So what you do with cards, Steve does he with fishing. The, 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 the demographics, the demology, the top, what's the word? Top. Uh, the, of the ocean floor. Yes. yes. The top, he understood topo, it. Topo, topography. Topography of the ocean topo. floor. He went after it to a point where some maps are there because of Steve Lasley. Uh, of, of what's there. He's won the Bisbee Black and Blue, I think, four times. The wow. richest fishing tournament in the world. Wow. And I was lucky enough, because he was Anthony's captain, that I would take reporters out, and I got a fish with Steve mm-hmm. and this crew. And I mean, I mean I've reeled in a 750-pound Marlin. Whoa. That's like reeling in a Honda Civic. Yeah. Monsters. Oh, yeah. I've caught some pretty big ones. I don't think I never, I never on that level, but I have caught... Seven foot. We went shark hunting. My favorite thing is to hunt oh, sharks. Oh, nice. And uh, so, but the biggest I ever caught was seven footer. Well, I mean, it, it, and it, but it's it's what I love about it, and what I want to get your take. I mean, you said you can feel the line and know. Oh, yeah. Steve can look at the water and know. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's both. It's both with a, 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 a separate a second, vision. Second, it's a, a second, second, second sense yes. being used. He's using his uh, his visual sense to see what's not seeable. Yep, and uh, I'm using my touch to know when a fish is close enough to fart near my eye. <laughs> <laughs> How does that? And once again, I'll bring it back to the CBS. I find it fascinating. When you're out on the water, how does it change, or does it? Oh, it does. Okay. Oh, big time. In fact, I can see. I will. I will see in front of me what I'm believing is happening below me. In other words, if I'm see, if I if all of a sudden, boing. My hook's getting pulled. Yeah, I am seeing something down there pulling it. So it's it's creating it, it creates my the vision for me, and so um, you know and and, I, and of course like I said I'm looking towards where my line is out in the water and if I looked away I wouldn't have that same I would not have the same visual impressions, but I will see uh, what is happening in front of me, um, and I, and that happens all the time and sometimes it's in areas that you wouldn't want to be able to see. If whatever <laughs> someone's doing, I will see. If I hear them doing it, I see them doing it. Then you can imagine uh, in your own mind how far that can carry. Absolutely. So now, uh, you you caught the sail, uh, sailfin? Oh, oh, I caught uh, sailfish. Yeah, sailfish. We caught, we caught all together seven sailfish that were over seven foot. One, we got hooked in one nine-foot marlin and 
caught a couple of mahi mahi in the four and a half foot range. The always, Moisey always South. delicious. Oh, yeah. always delicious. My brother, my brother Mike, uh, is a uh, trained chef, and uh, he cooked it up for us. He had the top restaurant in all of Costa Rica at the time, and uh, so we brought it in. He cooked it. Made it taste really good. Nice. Now you, but compared to the eyeball. Okay. I mean, Mike, I, I don't know how good your mahi mahi is, but compared to the eyeball. The, the, the fish itself was better tasting than the eyeball. What, <laughs> I, should we tell him what you're talking about? Yeah, please, please. Well, uh, I, I have a friend named Jim Blowers. He was my high school bud. And we, I, I always, and I hope that this doesn't come across too arrogant and whatever, because I know I, I just get energetic when I'm talking. And you obviously wanted me to ask question, answer questions about myself. So it's in itself, it's, it's hard to talk about yourself. And then, and then, and then we get back to one of your earlier questions about how does it, you figure what the cards have done. I, I look at it as pages in a book. I can't really relate that all this has happened to me and for me and with me and about me. Um, but anyway, uh, my, gym, my, my high school bud, Jim Blowers, I always had to push the envelope. We see a... a uh, a log across two canyons, I had to cross it. We see a cliff, I have to climb it. We, uh, uh, then I, we start carrying things. There's a, there's a grasshopper on the ground. Bet you, you know, started off actually with a ancho, a rotten fish on the ground. 10 bucks, you eat that. Throw up, money's mine. Boom, down goes the rotten fish. Um, grasshoppers, cockroaches, um, and it just kept going on and on and on. Um, rotten fish guts, fish guts that stewed in, in, in juices for seven days out in the 100 degree sun. And I'm chomping on this stuff. And then, of course, Jim Bowers, when we're out there shark hunting, that was our chum. He throws up from watching me <laughs> eat the chum. But anyway, so um, I told we were out. They, wanted, they were just wanting to get footage of me catching these big fish. And... Um, and then I, and there, and now they, you know, we already caught the big sailfish and stuff. And uh, so now they're, pa they're passed out. Uh, you know, they're seasick because we're out, you know, out, uh, out in the waters off of Tamarindo, Costa Rica. And uh, in the really deep waters took, you know, a couple hours to get out there. And so um, I, I have this big old mahi-mahi and I, I told him, hey, you guys, you might want to get your cameras back out. I'm Jim Blowers used to pay for this show. They're going, oh, no, we're too sick. And I said, okay. And I said, Diego, who was the captain's first mate, has his deckhand. I said, cut the eye out of that mahi-mahi. And Asa sat next to me. He goes, he's going to eat it. Asa knew what was up. I, I heard him on camera. He's like, he's going to eat it. Yeah, and, was... then, and as soon as they heard that, instantly from seasick, the director's on set, camera's up, sound man's on deck. And the, the director, anyway, they're all ready to ready to roll, and they cuts that mahi mahi eye out, and I, I put it, I put it in my mouth, and then um, the first time I went by it down, it popped out of my mouth and rolled all across the the, the vessel. And Asa went and got it, brought it back to me. I put it in my mouth, and I, and I, with the eyeball facing forward, and then I started chomping on it, and all the inner guts go shooting out about four or five feet towards the camera, and. I guess it was a pretty good uh, looking sight. It was. <laughs> and by the way, Stanley, another superpower, uh, an indestructible stomach. Like, no matter what you're eating, you're you're living large. You're still you're still you're still with us. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 and, and I, if if it was a uh, if you thought that it was 
if there was a mental thing, I would have thrown up if I couldn't take it. Yeah. You know, like the rest of them, they almost, they almost lost it at lunch. And, then, and that's why the director, Luke, goes, what's the meaning of this? You hear him in the background saying that, what? So when have you had a taste of an eyeball? Yeah. Anthony uh, had all of us, when I first went fishing with him, uh, cut a tuna, and they cut the heart out of the tuna, and they're like, got to eat the heart. Ah, there you go. And I mean, I'm a kid from Montana who, I mean, my dad, when I shot my first deer, made me drink some blood of the deer. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay. Yeah, and, he, and he thought I was this hippy-dippy surfer boy. I said, no, no, I'm still just a country boy from Montana that started shooting a gun at eight years old. If you want me to eat the heart, I'll eat the heart. Yeah. <laughs> mom, my, my wife's mom, shot a moose. Oh, geez. That's a... <laughs> moose are huge. Moose are huge. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That is, uh, so one more thing. We'll wrap it up with this. Uh, Ocean's 11. They're, they're getting away with the heist. Everything's happening. The, um, it seems like, you know, for anyone who's not paying attention, right? It looks like if, if we discount hard work, if it, once again, they're not paying attention, right? You've gotten away with something. You've, oh. you've, you've gotten away with something magical here in the fact that you've carved your own way. But more importantly, outside of the movie and just in your life, what are one or two stories that that still make your heart warm? Whether it's a, a love story or a favorite date with your wife or or an adventure that you went on that you would tell your son and he's like, this is a made up story. This never really happened. Hmm. Uh, let me think. So many, so many good times with Kim. Uh, <laughs> when, when a man's lived a love story this is the pause of there's just a lot there's too much and there's too much I, I, I've expressed so much of it already yeah and and like I said I just I love sitting in our dual dual recliners beside beside uh, beside each other and put something on Netflix put my little shuffle pad on my on my lap and practice while we uh, watch some some <laughs> film that I really want to be with her more than I really care about the thing that we're watching. Yeah. But I don't know if I, I answered any question in that. No, I, I think you answer. did with that right there because in you're able to do what you love to do and spend time with the person you love. And whether the show's on or not, it's inconsequential to the person that's next to you. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, whether the cards are there or not is inconsequential to the person that's next to you. Yeah, and and then and then when my son comes and joins us, that's that's even more exciting. And like I said, uh, just the travels that we've done together as a family worldwide uh, is memories that I I hope that he'll take with him. That he was dad was always there and he was always with his dad, and then and with his mom and. Uh, so I, I, all I can say is I've been very, very blessed, very fortunate, and uh, I have lived a life that I could have never imagined, and 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 that it, it is having a positive impact on others surprises me, surprises me because that was not my intention is to be inspirational, motivational, or whatever to anybody. I just love what I do, and I just love what I did, and. Um, uh, and the fact that it is touching people and the movie is touching people is, you know, is just like a, a extra cherry on the top of the cherry 
of the cake that I, I really was beyond my ever my any expectations. All right, selfishly, um, I'll close with this. Uh, I've got my daughter here. She just turned five. Uh, she's we, she, she's a sweetie. She's a, she is the apple of my eye. Um, very rarely, but there are opportunities where I get to ask this. Uh, if there if there is any advice you'd give a, a, a young woman growing up, she's five. You know, you, I know you had a son, mm-hmm. but um, any anything you would tell to a, to a kid that has the whole world in front of them, that if she's listening to this at 15 or 21 or 40, She's like, man, a, a man who has accomplished and done so much for himself, for his family, and for others. Is there any ten cents of wisdom? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I can put it, present it from the from the female point of view. I no, just from, from your point ma- of view. From, yeah. ma- from my point of view, from a man to a woman, I, I always say, treat your wife like a queen. Uh, don't with, without expecting anything in return. If you treat her like a queen, she'll treat you like a king. And so I think, you know, that I'd express that to her as, you know, be treated like a queen. I've, I've always, controversially, I've always said, I'll, I'll, you know, in my personal thing, like, I'll, I'll never spank my daughter. Not because I don't believe in not being spanked, mm-hmm. but because I don't believe I can lay hands on her and say, I'm doing this because I love you. And then when she's 20 or 30, if some boyfriend hits her and he says, I'm doing it because I love you or a husband does, yeah. I, don't, I don't want that parallel. Yeah, I don't even I, want I, that I, close. I, I agree. I, I, I'm with you on that. I agree with you. And Asa... During his time, he, he probably had a half a dozen spankings in his life. And one of the times, Dad got the worst of it because <laughs> he was roller skating in the house. And I can't remember what he did to get a spanking. So I went to spank him and I went to swat him on the butt. He lifted up his roller skate and I broke one of my fingers uh, in my hand. I snapped it literally in half. Oh! And right before I was meeting these producers in Hollywood the next day. For a, for a, a project, and I had to do my stuff with a broken finger. I mean, and I didn't. I went in, had a set, and then I. And then when I was doing my stuff, I was in such pain. But I. I and then the, anyway. Yeah. So my son got <laughs> uh, my, the, one of the spankings he got. Dad got the worst of it. Dad got the worst of it. <laughs> I, I know you're a busy man. You're getting ready to travel again. You've got a date night with with your wonderful wife tonight. Mm-hmm. I can't. Thank you enough for this. This has been a real honor and a real pleasure. Oh, it's been my pleasure as well. I, I, great, I, I, you have a great voice too. Oh, well, thank you. I have a really it, great voice. Thank you. It's uh, it's funny. I, I I try to listen to these and I get I don't you know I, don't, I never like the sound of my own voice. Nobody does. Nobody. Nobody, nobody does. Nobody hears their own voice. Likes the sound of their own voice. Yeah, crazy people. We're man. hearing it from the inside. They're hearing it from the outside. So we sound different to ourselves. Oh, I like that. That's interesting. I like that. But once again, uh, thank you for for all the time for everything. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I, I look forward to now watching Delt again from a love story perspective. Uh, and everyone out there, once again, the movie's Delt. Uh, you can find it, Richard Turner. Your website's Richard Turner. 52.com. 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 Uh-huh. You, know, uh, you can find uh, Google Play, iTunes, Amazon Vimeo, Prime. Amazon Prime. All my Amazon Prime members out there, uh, watch it. It's absolutely fascinating. Once again, sir, I can't thank you enough. This has been a real honor and a real pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And, and till next time, and sayonara. Sayonara. And now, everyone, as I close, you can now listen to my daughter singing about the first time she went number two. Enjoy.